I'm Chris from Play Comics, a show where we look at video games based on comic properties and how well they stick to that source material, a part of the Gunna Geek Network, just like the show you're checking out now. Shows on the network are individually owned, and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other astonishingly geeky shows at GunnaGeekNetwork.com. This is the official GunnaGeek.com show. Each week, we run down the latest news and happenings in the world of geek. These are your hosts for the show, Steven, Chris, and SP. Welcome to the 8th episode of the 370th series of the Gunna Geek Show. I am Steven, and with me, of course, is Chris Farrell. Sorry, boys and girls, I'm back. Also, we're pleased to say that he's here for the moment, SP. I actually feel qualified to be on the show today. I performed open heart surgery on an iPhone successfully, so I can be on a geek podcast Was about it tech. Successful all the way through? Well, it was the second attempt, so. Uh, so no. What is, what is the heart of the iPhone? Well, I don't know, but I replaced the battery and then I replaced the charging port. And it was an old iPhone 6 Plus, so five and a half years old. So it wasn't like I was ruining my $1,000 iPhone 12 Pro Max. So basically what you're saying is that there was two of hearts in there. Two hearts that beat as one. Is that what you're telling me? Well, I mean, you consider the two items I replaced to be hearts. Yes. I mean, there's other items in there which you could have as hearts. Wait, how many hearts does an iPhone have? That is the lifelong question that we have been wondering. And Chris Farrell is saying that he is definitively answering that as zero. Well, does it have something that pumps blood? <laughs> I don't know. It's an iPhone. Everything's in close. It's a closed you, system. You, you just never know. One you just gutted one today. You'd have seen it if there was blood in there. I know, but you can, like, have you ever been fishing and you cut open a fish to, you know, you know eat it later on and, and it doesn't bleed because, like, you keep all the guts in one place? I just bite the head off and throw it back in. Mm, Norwegian. Nice. Norwegian style. Captain Sig approves. All I got to say, Chris, is that you, you, you always got to put us into a box, man. Like, why do you got to define a heart one way? Maybe your definition of a heart isn't my definition of a heart, man. Are you about to sing Nirvana? No. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start off today with some news that is coming out of the world of Xbox. What? Well, it's kind of the world of Xbox, the world of cell phones, and the world of Android. So as we get into this news story, I have to ask you guys who are watching live and then Steven and SP, of course, have you guys heard of the Microsoft Surface Duo? Yes. I am assuming that is the Batman and Robin edition. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. The Batman and Robin edition. For the, so for those that aren't aware, it the Surface Duo is Microsoft's return to smartphones. It is not a Windows OS powered phone. It runs Android 11, I believe it is. And they are joining in on the dual screen folding craze. This is basically a device that's effectively a phablet when you unfold it, but it looks like a book and you open it up and there's two screens, one on each side. 
it's kind of an interesting, fascinating device, but even when the tech came out, it was a bit dated and they are starting to put it on sale. I've seen it as low as six or $700 for a Surface Duo. And I've kind of considered it. I just don't really have the use case for it other than wanting to play with it. And it is Microsoft's return to smartphones. So they did put a bunch of different Microsoft specific apps and things on there, but it's a relatively clean version of Android. Why do I bring this up though? Well, Microsoft has their own Android phone. Microsoft also has an online app that they use for streaming games. So, hmm, maybe they're going to do something with this. We know that they had teased the potential for an Xbox handheld-like experience with the Surface Duo when it was first unveiled two years ago. And as of this, the past couple days, it is finally appearing. Microsoft has updated its Xbox Cloud Gaming app for Android and includes dual screen support for the Surface Duo. It's actually a really cool implementation for dual screen support. The update allows Duo owners to use a virtual gamepad on one screen of the device and then play all of the games on the other. It effectively makes the Surface Duo look kind of like a Nintendo 3DS on a mobile phone. They put touch controls in there for a variety of games. There are 50 games that have been optimized for touch controls on the Surface Duo alone, including things like Sea of Thieves, Gears 5, and Minecraft Dungeons. These are all games that you can already play on game streaming in any way, shape, or form if you plugged in or connected a controller, but these 50 that they've made, including the ones I read, have been optimized so that that lower screen on the Surface Duo will be customized touch controls, which I thought was really cool. Before we all start going crazy about, oh my God, this is the greatest thing ever, we do need to consider this is for the Surface Duo. There's probably not a ton of people out there that are rocking the Surface Duo in comparison to say, the Galaxy S10 or S11 or whatever the heck the current version of the Galaxy S line is. But why is this important? Because it's a proof of concept. and Maybe this is the way ahead for how Microsoft can support dual screen or folding phones. On the Samsung fo uh, Fold line, you could theoretically implement a similar procedure where the top half of the screen is uh, the game, the bottom half is your touchpad controls, and you can angle the screen how you want. That works for both the regular flip, the, excuse me, the regular fold and what is it, the fold Z that is a different kind of clamshell device, which almost looks like a Game Boy Advance SP if you want to go back in time. So that'd be kind of cool. I'm interested to see where Microsoft goes with this. I like to see touch controls get more widely adopted. And this is a really cool implementation of them instead of just putting the touch controls over top of the game you're playing. It's giving you a whole separate screen that controls the game and giving you that handheld portable feel. I love it. I'm curious to see where they go next. Question. Yes, sir. Could you use it in a special virtual reality uh, mask where one side goes to one eye and one guy side goes to the other eye, therefore giving you inherent 3D? I mean, can you do that? So what I would suggest is you should tweet Phil Spencer at Xbox P3 on Twitter and give him that suggestion and see if they're going to do that. He is the head of the Microsoft Xbox division or games division. I can't remember what his official title is, but he's the head honcho for Xbox. Sure. I, I will go ahead and I will CC you and the Gunna Geek Twitter account when I do. Perfect. Okay. Okay. Now, if I heard you correctly, you mentioned the Surface Duo was not the most modern thing in the world, correct? The specs were slightly dated about the time it came out. It was tech that was about eight to 10 months old the guts of it when it came out. So now we're almost a year out from that. So it's a little long in the tooth, for lack of a better term. So what's the future of all of this then? 
So that's a real good question. Microsoft hasn't committed to a Surface Duo 2 or anything like this at this point in time. I honestly think that what they've done here is kind of a proof of concept to say, hey, we can do this for other folding phones so that the fold by its very nature, that crease where it folds is a natural separator between, say, touch controls and gameplay. So you could theoretically see them saying, hey, we made this so that it's modifiable depending on screen resolution to scale appropriately so that for folding devices, we can put the touch controls on a separate screen or a separate section from the game itself. That, that's where I think they're going to go with this. I don't think they're going to spin this into here's the ultimate way to play our Xbox games on the go. That'd be cool if they did, but not everyone's going to buy a Surface Duo just to play Xbox games or whatever the successor is to the Surface Duo. The other thing that this kind of makes me scratch my head a little bit is that I, I like the idea, the general concept that you have a two-screen device and you're going to have one dedicated as a controller. However, I would like to know how many people can easily adjust a adjust to a um, tact-free controller or tactless controller where where there's there's no physical correlation so, to the buttons on there. I think that you would find even hardcore gamers and hardcore phone users, you could get a split, like a small percentage that could adapt to it. Do you know how many kids play Fortnite on iPads or iPhones or Android phones right now using I, touch I, controls? I don't know that. I was going to ask you that. It's a lot. If you, if you happen to have those stats. I don't have the stats, but it is widely represented that, especially since you can cross-play between all of these things, a lot of these games that are these shooters, they've adapted to have touchscreen controls where it's similar to the controller. The left thumb controls your movement, right thumb your look, and then you've got other places you can press to do shooting and jumping and things like that. They've already done this. Touch control has been put in place for a variety of games. So while it is not my preferred way to play, it is an established way that people play a lot of games that are out there right now, which is why it's interesting to see Microsoft taking games that are mapped to a controller and making them work with touchscreen controls on their cloud streaming device. Well, I just saw a Facebook meme uh, coincidentally the other day that said, try to type the following word without looking at your screen. And the intention behind that was that people couldn't do it, which is kind of why I wonder how many people could could actually adapt to this. Yes, you bring up there are some that are, um, but I don't know. I, I, I don't see it myself, but I guess... I think it also depends on the type of game you're playing, too. I think a shooter would be tough unless you play a lot of shooters that way. But when you start getting into some more casual kind of things, like if they put Peggle on there or things like that that are already on touchscreens, it would lend itself pretty well to it. Let's be honest. If you're going to be playing Gears of War 5 on your touchscreen, you're playing because you're bored sitting somewhere waiting for something to happen. Not necessarily so you can have the 100% best experience. But I guess my, my point is that there's a difference between touchscreen-based games and a controller that is touchscreen. And, th and that's the disconnect yes. there, is, is the, the, the use of an Xbox layout, control, Xbox controller layout on the touchpad. So Well, that's not exactly how they lay it out. I, I could not include... I, well, if we pull up the article, there's screenshots there, but they lay the buttons out differently than like an Xbox feel on that bottom screen. So, didn't somebody a couple of years ago come out with some physical buttons that you could place on your device? So there's a few different peripherals that exist out there. There's some that are devices that clip onto your phone that would basically clip on in the place where you'd be using your thumbs to control things. There's other devices that snap around either side of your phone and plug into the uh, USB-C or the Thunderbolt port 
on the bottom of it, basically turn it into a Nintendo Switch-like controller. There's like the Razer Kishi, I think, is the device I'm thinking of that does something similar. There's another device called like the Backblaze for iOS that does that. So there is an emerging market right now of people building accessories for cell phones to further enable gaming, be it a clip-on controller that plugs into the USB port or something that clips onto the screen and makes use of the existing touch controls in a variety of games. That's what I was going to get at. I don't know if it exists or not, but if you could put a pad or a sheet or maybe even a screensaver, you know, one of those, the sheets that you put over your screens to save the screen from getting um, cracked if you drop it on a rock or something like that, like that's ever going to stop it. But anyway, uh, if you had that sheet and it was like textiled in different places where the controls weren't and just plain a, a sheet or maybe all the way through to the screen where the controls were, at least you'd have a guide of where the controls were and not have to look at it. Now, whatever, maybe I'm just making up a a solution to a problem that nobody's going to care about, but I think that might work. I think we're overestimating the complexity of touchscreen gaming based off the fact that it's going on widely purchased or widely played games that people are microtransactioning the heck out of right now to play it. And I, I also think if you're going to start haul, hauling around physical things, you might just pair a controller to your to your device. Yeah, well, or <laughs> the get reason, one of the Razer Kishis or something like that. Yeah. The reason I was thinking of the mat or a screensaver is that would be inherent on the screen mm. anyway. Fair enough. Yeah, you that's... need it to be e-ink so you can change it based off of the game you're playing. I like Ooh. it. Well, I look forward to seeing what comes of this and the duo. Uh, to be honest, nothing may come of it. It just sounds, it just looks cool. So I wanted to share it. It's probably <laughs> going to go the same way that Google Duo will eventually. I don't know. They came up, the, these foldable screens or whatever, the, these foldable devices came up a couple of years ago and then went away. Mm-hmm. But I think they're gaining momentum. I think people want a phablet size of screen when they're somewhere and they don't want to carry a phablet. So they want to be able to put it in their guys want to be able to put it in their pocket. So it'd be bigger, but it, it would be there. The, the best one right now are the ones that fold horizontally. So it's a clamshell that folds down like this. Mm. I'm not on camera. I just realized. So it's clamshell that folds down like this horizontally because that gets you back to the form factor similar to what we had back in the day with flip phones. Like I think it's what is the Galaxy Z flip or whatever. Like if I was not having my own concerns about the durability of folding screens, that's nearly ideal because it folds up in a relatively decent size that I can just toss in my pocket and go. Mm -hmm. I enjoy having a big screen phone, but uh, we're blessed as dudes on this show that we generally have big pockets to put them in. Yes, that is a problem with women's fashion. And don't get me started on the lack of pockets in women's fashion. That's so (laughs) wrong. Well, as long as you could open the screen up with your thumb and it have that, you know, the Star Trek, yeah, the, the original sure series, as long as that is there, <laughs> then this thing will sell. I mean, it's Android. You could put whatever you want on there. You just have to have something that triggers every time you open it. Which takes us nicely to uh, the next news point that we've got here. This past week, Google had their Google I.O. conference, which was held online through a variety of different live streams and conferences. As with tradition, the keynote set the excitement for several upcoming changes within the Android and just general Google platforms. In both the news points that I'm going to cover today, I want to highlight a couple of of things that I found particularly interesting about Google I.O. So I want to start off here with one that I 
I kind of found a little excited about, which is a little surprising because it's been a while since I've been excited about things uh, with, with these IO conferences and, and whatnot. And let's begin with, with the one that I did not see coming, which is that Google and Samsung announced that they're working together on a new wearable product slash platform. Although Google and uh, different and Android manufacturers have been in wearables for quite honestly, a lot longer than Apple has been. The bottom line is pretty straightforward. Apple has just crushed everything non-Apple in the wearable market. For whatever reason, Android wearables, even though they have been around a lot longer, have just paled in comparison to the Apple Watch. As Chris has can probably confirm, over the years, there have been a few individual successes along the way. But overall, the Android side of things in the wearable market has been very inconsistent. And part of the reason for this is because Google's Android-based software has really struggled to be a platform or the go-to platform for certain manufacturers to build on for wearables. Great example of this. One of the biggest Android manufacturers, if not the biggest Android manufacturer, Samsung, has had a moderate uh, degree of success with their smartwatch line, but they didn't build on Google's Wear OS. No, they built instead on Tizen. But this week at Google I.O., they did announce that they are essentially merging the two platforms together. Now, I want to note, Fitbit was included in this announcement, but it seemed to me, like I, I watched them talk about it, it seemed a little bit like a pity nod, if you ask me. Uh, this, this, though, isn't really surprising to me, though, because Google does own Fitbit. And my guess would be that they probably didn't want to infer any specific shakeups with Fitbit because really Fitbit has been pretty successful overall as a brand. So I, I think Google probably wanted to acknowledge we're not forgetting about Fitbit, but uh, it's not the highlight of this announcement. What I did though find very surprising was that later in the whole event, they did mention that they're not focusing with the product that them and the Google and Samsung are making. They're not focusing on a lot of the mainstream health sensor features that you get in the Apple smartwatch. However, they did make it clear that they're not forgetting about this. And from a platform perspective, they are making it so that the software platform will be easier for different watch manufacturers to get those health monitoring features in there if they want to. Apparently, the bottom line is in the current Wear OS uh, version, essentially developers that want to include health features essentially have to go all across the, the OS in order to get the different things that are needed to basically build a feature. So this new platform that Samsung or Google are coming together are going to make that way easier and, and basically set it up so a manufacturer that does want to include those sensors in a uh, Android-based watch will be able to do that easily. In my opinion, after hearing this announcement, and this is entirely on speculation of my own, I think this sounds to me like maybe they're working on a joint platform together, Google and Samsung, probably a joint platform together. That's going to be like a highlight product of this is sort of the basic outline of what a, what a new Wear OS watch could be or whatever they call it. But they're not going to do all the bells and whistles together. And maybe... Samsung will go and do their own thing with their own products themselves. And the reason why I speculate this is really twofold. Number one, Samsung, as I mentioned, has been having moderate success with their watches already. So why would they want to go and give up 
all the money for part of the money if if they're having to split all of their products. They're probably going to want to continue their own dedicated line. And the second thing is that there has been real strong rumors kicking up about smartwatches' abilities to basically do no, no prick glucose monitoring. And there are two manufacturers that have been really in the rumor mill strong for the last year. One is Apple. The other is Samsung. Those are the two that, that the more reliable um, sources have been saying. And so I think if Samsung is on the verge of this technology in the same way Apple is, again, that indicates that they probably wouldn't want to let that go. They probably have a vision of health monitoring. So I kind of think they might continue their own line, build this platform with Google, maybe work on a product together. You know, Samsung can do the hardware or whatever. And then um, they have their own line. That's my guess. At the moment, I personally don't need health features in smartwatches, but I do have to say, if they don't find a way to make this come out in a successful smartwatch on Android, it's just going to be another failure because there are a lot of people that want those health features in their smartwatch. But it looks like promising news because, again, they are realizing that the current offerings on both sides are really failing or have their own gaps. And so they're working together. Uh, let's start off with you, Chris, as an Android user. What's your, what's your thoughts on this whole wearable announcement combination between Samsung and Google? So Wear OS runs like poo on most devices right now because the processors that they're using in Wear, devi in Wear devices are just garbage, not very power efficient, and they just churn and spin and are slow. Where Samsung had their advantages, they used their own hardware in a lot of cases and then put Tizen on top of it, which was not as power hungry or anything like that. What could be really interesting for this proposed merge is there are rumors coming out across the different tech blogs and things right now that not only is it going to be a collaboration of OS by taking the best pieces of ties and the best pieces of Wear OS and potentially the health benefits of Fitbit and combine them into one thing. There has been talk that Samsung and Google are going to exchange hardware. Specifically, we've heard rumors that Samsung is helping Google to develop the processor in the upcoming Pixel phones. What we have also started seeing on some of these sites is rumors that Samsung is going to be providing the processor for this first pilot prototype of whatever the new Android Wear device is. And it's not a slouch. It's a five nanometer processor. And for comparison, the Snapdragon 4100, I think that's in there now, is something like a 14 or a 12 nanometer uh, processors. So big difference there, big difference in power requirements and things like that. And that's how you start to cut into that lead. They're never going to overtake Apple devices when it comes to the go-to or the most acclaimed wearable device. But if they can put something out there that's good, there's a lot of people that are on Android still. They're going, man, I would kill for a good wearable. And they're just kind of using a fitness tracker that kind of fits that gap. Or they're using an old Wear OS device and they're cursing about it because it's slow and doesn't run very well. I think if we can take the Samsung hardware and the Samsung designs, because look at what they've done for their Galaxy, what is it, the Fit and the Galaxy, whatever their watches are, they've all been pretty cool. I mean, they had like the spinning rim on there so that you can yeah. adjust settings and things like that. They've had really cool designs for their watches. And I think that there is a framework of Wear OS that makes sense for when it comes to notifications, having everything baked in. It's just a matter of how they make this Frankenstein of a monster and how well it works. I'm interested to see where it goes. As it is right now, I continue to not recommend Wear OS or Android Wear or whatever the heck they're calling it now when it comes to a smart device for notifications for folks. It's just not very good right now. 
I do want to get your take on this SP in a second, but I do want to backtrack here for a second. And and, and I want to say that I, I know you're more pessimistic than I am, Chris, about Android's ability to, to beat Apple here. But the, the bottom line is, based off of pure math, I, I think if they can come up with a successful market, there is no reason why they wouldn't pass Apple because they own like what, 70% of the smartphone mar- market All Android? Right. Clarification, I didn't say that they would not sell more than Apple. I said that they would not be considered the de facto or the go-to wearable device. Everyone talks about wearables and watches right now. They go straight to Apple Watch. Yeah, and that's fine that I get that where you're saying that, but I disagree because if 70%, if you have 70% of the market share and you come out with good products, then all of a sudden you have a, a lot more eyes on that watch if if based off of like percentage and just worldwide recognition, but and then even you become they- the innovator because now people are looking at you and you have more revenue. Like it, it just doesn't make sense to me why if they did not you're come talk- out with a good you're product. talking money. I'm talking name brand recognition and things like that here. They're not necessarily the same thing. What I'm saying here is when someone talks about a wearable anymore, it's always a default to, oh, the Apple Watch is really cool. Or I wish I could get the Apple Watch and Android because it's a polished, well-done device. Even if this new Android Wear, whatever the heck kind of watch comes out and it's good, it's not going to have the same level of polish or recognition as the Apple Watch. It takes more than one hit to go and take the crown from Apple in this case. They've got to put out five or six hits before they're going to be in any place or position to do that because of how bad the platform has become and the perception by many folks that they abandoned Wear OS for the last two years. Because when's the last time you saw anything about a Wear OS update coming out from Google until today, until this Google I.O. announcement? There's a lot of bad blood, especially when it comes on the Android enthusiast side of the house because they're like, we feel like you guys gave up on this. I, I guess the only thing I would turn to on that, and I am talking the same thing as you, is that Fitbit was the go-to wearable for a long time before Apple Watch came along. And it didn't take, it just took the right formula before for, for Apple to usurp it. And you guys are going to sit there and you're going to argue, oh, they're totally yeah. different. Yeah. How no, much no, no, did we no, no, make no. fun of the first two generations of Apple Watch? Everyone about how it wasn't right. And it took Apple redesigning the OS that was on it. And it took them two or three years after the first one came out before they had a hit. But they did. Look, look. They did. And that's, that's my point is that they did do it. And they were able to come and push Fitbit to God, like who cares about Fitbit? Let, let me ask you a really quick question. You say Fitbit was the go-to. Are you talking about smart integration or are you talking about like a tracker? I'm just when talking you say about it's the go-to. Go-to wearable. If you were like, I, I, there, there is a brand recognized wearable device. Okay. It was Fitbit. And now the, well, the brand recognizable wearable device is this Apple Watch. Because in fitness circles actual fitness circles, Garmin was more of a notable brand than Fitbit. Mm-hmm. So that that's, I, mm. I'm just asking for a clarification. I, I don't know that I, I agree with that assessment, but that's There's fine. a different mindset between your average consumer and person who is, I don't mean this term disparagingly, gym rat or person that's very focused on, I need these tools to help me succeed more in the gym or on my runs. Yes. They, they have very different perceptions on what they want. And right. hey, Wear OS missed the mark on both of those right uh, now. Okay, <laughs> that's fair. Um, okay, I, I do want to ask you though your take though, SB, because you use an Apple Watch. 
Um, or you have lots of people who have used Apple Watches in your family. I, I want to know your thoughts on all this. Okay, so I've got two things. So first of all, when you're talking wearable, are you limiting yourself to watch when you're talking about that, Chris and Steven? Not necessarily. I'm, lim- I'm limiting myself to a watch or a fitness band tracker kind of things. I don't want to bring in like the Amazon glasses yes. or Bluetooth headphones that have smart assistants in them. Okay. Because when I think of the term, the, just the definition wearable, I go well beyond watch. And it's not even glasses. I go into chest straps or ankle braces or uh, some, some sensor somewhere on your body. Necklace doesn't necessarily have to be a watch. And I would love to see a brand branch out beyond watches and go to other things because there's some people that just can't wear a watch for a lot of different reasons, but would like to have the same sort of tracking that is consistent with whatever OS that they're using, you know, whether it's Android or Apple or Microsoft or whatever. So that that's the first thing I want to say. And if Samsung and Google are banding together to expand that definition of wearable into more than just watches, I think that would be great. Now, there's no indication that I saw in your story or online of that being the case, but that might enable that case to occur. And then I don't know how marketable that is. Maybe in the medical profession or the fitness profession, as we were just talking about with Garmin, but I don't know about anything else. Matter of fact, you know, I could see if you could do everything from the health standpoint on an ankle bracelet, I could see a lot of women wanting more of that than on the wrist, but that's just me. Anyway, uh, the second thing that I was going to say or ask you guys is when you're talking about a wearable, most of the things that are talked about today are health related. So what kind of health related data do you want to get from your wearable right now, Chris? What, what kind of health data are you looking for? Me personally? Yeah. Well, that's an interesting question because I'm actually testing out the Wise Watch right now, which is a $20 fitness band that has smartwatch properties. And for 20 bucks, been relatively impressed with what it gives me. And what it's done for me is a uh, heartbeat monitoring throughout the day. It does it like roughly every five minutes, does sleep tracking at night to be able to determine uh, whether I'm getting deep sleep, light sleep, awake, things like that. And it also does, and I don't use this piece very much, does like the blood oxygen levels and there is a workout tracker in it. So honestly, those would be the basic things I'd be looking for from a fitness perspective. Toss on top of that what you would want from the smart Android or iOS piece, which is I want the ability to be able to read notifications in an ideal world, be able to reply to some of those quickly and easily and control my music maybe because I've been able to do that with Wear OS and that's kind of nice when you're at the gym instead of having to pull your phone out or anything like that. Just tap a button on your phone, on your watch rather, and you're good to go. So a lot of what I want is already out there. It's just there's no device for as an Android user that combines them into a nice package at this moment yeah. in time. Steven, what are the things, the data sets that you would want in a wearable? Uh, I think from a health monitoring perspective, you definitely want like heart rate in there. I think that's that's kind of a go to. And beyond that, I, I haven't really put much else in there, but I think like like much thought into it. I, I think the health m- or the heart rate is such a 
a big thing for people who are active um, in there. I think that's kind of one of your main things that you need to have. But I think that also needs to be you need to use other data that is being expected in other wearable platforms like being able to track sleep cycles. Okay, yes, we 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 know from the Curiosity Daily podcast a bunch of that's bunk, but people are going to these monitors with that expectation, whether it's bunk or not. And so you need to have that sort of thing. Uh, I, I guess, you know, blood oxygen levels is a thing now, so you'd want to have that, right? Like, I, I think the bottom line is for Android to have a successful smartwatch, it needs to have all of the features that Apple Watch has. So like, for me personally, I want a smartwatch that is interactive with my phone. I don't need the health features, but I I want from these products something that is check marks all down the columns to match the Apple Watch because I think that's the only way they're going to have a chance of really knocking it out the park, of uh, knocking it out of the park on the Android side of things. And one thing I didn't mention that I'm sure Stephen probably agree with is I want to be able to have contactless payment mm-hmm. in that device. And Wear OS mm. does do that on some devices if they have NFC in them. And I know Samsung's devices did for um, for Samsung Pay, I believe, is what their service is. Yeah. So it'll be interesting. But that's where we get into the weird complexities of it wasn't available in all countries. Google Pay, for instance, Google Pay is only available in certain countries. So being in the United States was never a problem for me. I just tapped my watch with a credit card reader and was good to go. But that is something I would also want to see in this dream device going forward. Basically, I want everything. I want an Apple Watch replicated for Android is uh-huh. what I want in my dream device. And I don't know that I'm going to get that for a price I want to pay right now. And that's why I'm pretty pleased with my $20 Wise Watch that I'm playing with right now because it was $20 and gives me most of what I wanted, but for 20 bucks. Yeah, I, I guess, though, the thing that I, I look at with that, and this is where the whole market share thing came came into my mindset, was that you look at Android and there, there's sort of this belief that Android should be cheaper than iPhones, even though if you look at a flagship ship Android, it's not the case anymore. But um, or it's a little cheaper, but it, it's leveled out a lot more than it used to be. People, there are lots of Android users that want a good quality watch. And there are people leaving Android for Apple, for the Apple Watch. So if Samsung can do that, and they can go toe-to-toe with an Apple Watch, but they have to charge you an Apple Watch price, as long as it works properly, as long as it has those functions, there will be a lot of Android users that will shell out that money because they're willing to shell out the money by switching to Apple to get the Apple Watch. So I I think this is the opportunity for them to charge the price that they need as long as it's not higher than the Apple Watch. Let me run down really quick a few of the features that uh, I've been involved with on the Apple Watch Series 6 and tell you what my quick reaction to them are. First of all, they just unveiled you can unlock your phone with your watch because of the mask mandates the week that the mask mandates went away, at least here. So that was a little bit of a joke to me. So I finally get that ability like you're we talked about it before on the show. You're in the grocery store and you got your list on your phone and you have to open up your phone and then you can't do it. Uh, So now you can do it through your watch. Uh, but it's not that way throughout the entire world. I know that the mask mandate is going away is largely a United States thing right now. 
So anyway, that that's one thing. The next thing is the hand wash counter. I don't know if any of the Android stuff does it, but there's a ability for the watch to listen to your surroundings. Yes, you get creeped out by that. Listen to your surroundings and your hand movements and then count down 20 seconds to wash your hands, which pandemic or no pandemic, that's actually a useful thing as long as you have your watch on and have that enabled. Okay, Uh, the blood oxygen level. I think for the people that need it, it's good. But for the people that don't need it, it's like, eh, I don't care because it's not entirely accurate for the first part of it. And the other part is if it goes down too low, you probably have some other symptoms going down. So I don't know if that is a great thing to have long term, but it definitely was good to have during the pandemic. Uh, The sleep tracker. Okay, you I'm glad you mentioned that, Stephen, that Curiosity Daily kind of debunked all the watch sleep trackers. It's a data set. And if you take it over the long term, you can kind of guess how much you actually are getting sleep. Now, this is interesting. Was ECG. You can get an ECG now on your Apple Watch. I have not used that yet, but that would be interesting. And then, of course, the fitness tracker. I take for granted the notifications that come in. Matter of fact, I limit them while I'm wearing my watch because I just don't want to be overcome by them. Uh, But I get what you're saying about the integration. And I also get what you're saying about I wish there was something on Android because once I no longer have to use iOS to connect with family members, I would like to have that same functionality over an Android. So that's my thoughts. Thank you for running that down, because I think that that's a really good list of, of considerations and, and like a checklist that we need to look at the offerings when this new platform or new product line, whatever it is, comes out. I think that, that that's a really good list that you just ran down. Thank you. The one thing that I wish it could do, and I don't know if you could do it on your risk, is temperature, mm. because that was something that's an early indication of illness that we've learned throughout this pandemic and none of the wearables can do it or are on the path to do it or, or whatever. So being able to take your core body temperature would be nice. So that one would be tough, I would think, because since it's yeah. wrapped around your wrist, basically <laughs> it's trapping a bunch of heat there. So, But if you had it, say, connected wirelessly via like ultra wide band or Bluetooth or something to, say, a medallion you had around your neck or something like that, perhaps that would be a different story. Yeah, that's what I was saying. A different type of wearable. You could get it like it. it we kind of joke about the, the glasses piece, but that's positioned right where you need it for temperature uh, if you want to put a sensor on there. So anyway, uh, just certain things to, to think about. All right, well, let's go into the next news point here, which is an update about Blue Origin and the auction that SP took part in. <laughs> I actually did not submit a bid. And if I did, I was probably overcome almost instantly. So phase one of the Blue Origin auction to bid for a seat on the first crewed New Shepard flight ended on Wednesday, May 19th. The unsealed bid at that time was $2.6 million. We're now in phase two, which is unsealed, or I guess the sealed bid piece was first. And then the unsealed bid phase two is now underway. The current high bid as of when we started this show was $2.8 million. You can see that on their website, blueorigin.com. Phase two will continue until June 10th, 2021. The auction will conclude with a phase three live auction on June 12th, 2021. 
the winning bidder, as long as they meet the stipulation set forth in the contract, will lift off with five other, other crew members as early as July 20th, 2021. So this whole thing here kind of had me thinking a little bit about the future of private space travel because, or, you know, being a private person paying to get on there. Because there's been a couple of paid space tourists over the years. And I kind of look at SpaceX right now where they are and they're an independent entity. And yes, they're all um, contracted or, or doing stuff for NASA and whatnot. However... With something like this and the bidding just coming in very quickly, pretty semi-casually, you know, with, with with this type of dollar figures, it seems like SpaceX is in a really good position. Again, private organization to go, you know what? We're going to get our little uh, SpaceX space station going there and then uh, we're all set. Go ahead and uh, you're not going to bid. You just your ticket is five million dollars or whatever it is. Yeah, I haven't covered it yet, but the inspiration for crew on SpaceX that is will be going up to the International Space Station is a totally non-government crew. So it's four people that will be going up. Oh. They're in training right now, and it, it some are industry professionals or whatever. They're going up for a reason, but it's a completely non-government crew that's going up, and that's inspiration for uh, the other flight space tourism thing. Actually had a test flight over the weekend that I won't say the name of because then Stephen will make fun of it. But it had a test flight over the weekend, a third test flight in like three or four years. Uh, they are proceeding forward. I think most of the people that will do space tourism will probably do that because it's two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and it's a more conventional way to take off and land. Um, You're talking about Sir Richard Branson's company, correct? That is correct. That okay. is correct. Virgin yes. Galactic. That's what okay. he's talking about. Yes, that is what I'm talking about there. Uh, and then you've got this. Uh, I, I, I think there's just going to be a lot of, of uh, interest originally, but then it's just going to be too much money for the average person. It's not. Yeah. Uh, some people finance for like five years a trip to Walt Disney World for their family. Right. Uh, this would be like financing your life for <laughs> a 15 minute flight. So I, I don't know if it's worth it. But like, let, let's be totally real here. People that are shelling out this type of money, they probably have some reason in their life that that they, they want as low risk as possible with, with sort of these sort of things. And if I'm going to shell out $3 million plus for, for going to space in something that is very dangerous... Do I want to put that money towards Blue Origin or do I go, you know what? I could pay six million dollars and go with SpaceX who's proven themselves, right? Well, I, you know, if I'm spending three, just three million dollars, I go, okay, I'll spend an extra three million dollars gladly if it's with somebody that has, you know, a reputation here. So keep in mind, this is for the first. This isn't the ticket price. They haven't actually announced their ticket price could be closer to Sir Richard Branson's company ticket price of 250000 okay, So it could, I don't know, it, it could be more or not. But I think you're in the right realm. I mean, if you go up on SpaceX and Dragon or Starship and you go into low Earth orbit, either for a few days, you link up with the International Space Station or something like that, it's going to be in the millions of dollars, I would think. Yeah, it's crazy. In any case, we look forward to you reporting when you get back from this trip, SP. 
<laughs> when I stop throwing up. Suncast laughing from Mars right now. <laughs> All right, let's hop back to Google here for another moment here. And I just wanted to give a second highlight. And the second thing that I want to highlight was a bit of a surprise to myself that it is actually about the Android 12 updates. And why do I, I say that it's a surprise to myself that I want to cover this? Because for many years, both on the Android and the Apple side of things, the OS updates have been pretty, pretty boring. I was going to try to be more, uh, more politically correct than that. But bottom line is they've been boring. But this year, it looks like Google is getting a little back in touch with one of the biggest draws that was there for Android for a very long time, the customizability of Android. For years, the divide was very clear between Apple and Android. If you wanted a unified look, a polished feel, you go to Apple. If you wanted customization, Android was where you went. But over the last years, especially with the most recent iOS 14 upgrade, a lot of those features, those customization features that we've been seeing in Android over the years have been chipped away at by Apple, and the gap has really closed. If you look, they even added widgets in the iOS 14 that really brought that, that divide a lot closer. But Google announced several changes to Android 12 that focus around Vista visual customization. Now, if you're thinking that what this means is there'll just be a bunch of themes, well, you're partially wrong on that because while they did say there will be an array of designer-created palettes, they're really giving granular customization on the OS. And additionally, at one point, they actually showed a feature that I thought it sounded kind of cool, was that basically AI-based palette creation. The example they used was that you set your home screen to a certain photo, and then it analyzed said photo and recommended a color palette based off of the colors that were found in the photos and how they would sort of align with the different visual, uh, with the GUI on the system. Now, I'm not somebody that is looking to prioritize the design over function, but there are many people that really do want that customization. And that's one of the things that has continued to draw people to Samsung phones is the way that Samsung has gone and taken Android and really added their own software to make it highly customizable. And I will admit, I personally am enjoying the customization more and more in my devices. Now, there are some limited customization options in Android, but the bottom line is that they're, they're still kind of in a box. And it looks like Android 12 is going to make this so that the world is your oyster when it comes to the visual. The other thing I want to mention was that they regularly threw out the note on this and other Google-based products, but especially on Android, they really did highlight privacy and security many, many times. So it's clear to me that they're looking to bust that myth. And it is a myth that iOS, iOS is the safe one and Android is unsafe because that is sort of the go-to myth. And we've covered many, many stories over the years on how that is a myth on iOS. And there are many things that can happen and do happen. What is your definition of safe? Uh, mm, basically, okay, that's a good question. Safe, I would say that it means that people can use it blindly. And that, okay. that's the sort of idea that people have when they're talking about iOS being safe is, is like the old Apple myth of, I don't need no virus protection. That sort of thing is, is sort of the myth behind the iOS versus Android thing. Yeah, that's that's definitely a myth, especially in Mac OS is uh, getting hammered a lot more than it used to be. 
A lot of people are deeming privacy in terms of tracking now, which is where I was wondering if you were talking about the virus side of things or the tracking side of things. Uh, I was talking virus side, but they also were covering a lot about privacy and tracking and disable tracking and things like that on Android. So they are that is included in the in what they are trying to bust. Okay, B- because they're they are trying to address that as well. Uh, Chris, what's your thought? You look like you got some thoughts here. <laughs> Looks cool. I mean, I was looking at some of the highlights of Google I.O. after the fact. I didn't care enough to watch it live just because most of these things anymore, I they're not worth the excitement of watching live. But the post-blog coverage of the new look and feel for Android, it certainly feels very different than what we have now. It's going to be a very interesting leap forward. But the real question will be how do all of the OEMs adopt those traits in Android 12 going forward, because just because you can do it in Android doesn't necessarily mean that's how they're going to present it on, say, Mm. a Samsung phone or a Motorola phone or I was going to say LG, but they're getting out of the smartphone (laughs) business. But I think you guys know what I mean here is a Pixel phone, which is pretty much what they're showing this off on is the pure raw Android experience on Pixel may not necessarily align 100% with what you see from the different vendors out there. So I'm curious to see how this all works, and I'm curious to see how much of it is linked to the OS updates and how much it is linked to stuff that they hide behind like Google Play services updates and things like that to make it happen. And what I thought was really interesting, again, though, is they announced that the beta was open and available now for a variety of phones that weren't just Pixel phones again. So they're working real hard to get past that stigma, a rightful one, that the new versions of Android are probably not going to be on most of your devices We've seen that start to change is what Samsung is promising three years of software updates now. Yeah. OS updates on all their devices, things like that. In addition to the Google's doing two or three on all of theirs. Now, it's not quite the same as iOS, where there's some people rocking five-year-old devices still on the current OS, as in the modern OS that's out there. But hey, we're starting to get there. It's interesting. I'm not interested enough to download the beta and put it on my phone because I just don't want to deal with the headache of running the beta software, my daily driver. But I'm curious to see if Steven's actually going to do it. I'm thinking about it. I haven't yet. I almost, I almost did it right away just because I am curious. And I wonder oh. if you can get it in Canada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had the option to you go just in. flash it yourself. Yeah, okay. it was uh, I just had to go in, actually press the check mark, I think. Um, all right. What's your thoughts on this? I know you're all about, you know, the the sparkle on the phones there, SP. I think that um, if you're into the personalization, then Android is where you have to be. And anything that they can do to enhance that is for the better without having to root your phone. And I remember doing that once or twice and then just going back from it because it was just you you couldn't get any more updates and that sort of thing. Uh, But the people that are really into this stuff and, and keep up on all of the security things that they need to be aware of and everything. They just love to tinker with it. And I say, go for it. And iOS is never going to be the platform for you to do that. So definitely Android, at least for now, is your playground to do that sort of thing. And then just with the inherent personalizations, uh, iOS has started to get a lot more into the personalization thing where where you can go away from the conformity of what they give you but you still have a a baseline structure that you have to deal with uh there's some of the widgets that are nice now but it's nothing like what i remember from the android 
side of things. So whatever they come up with here, I think is, is going to be innovative and it's going to entice a whole set of users. Also, I will say, I know we talked about it on the podcast before, but when we've been assisting other people that have been looking at different phones, whether it's iOS, maybe they're coming from iOS and they're like, I don't want to touch Android, but then you take them showrooming, which is hard to do during a pandemic. (laughs) I get it. But then you take them showrooming, rooming and they actually look at the android and they're able to touch it and and manipulate and like oh okay this is a lot like ios yes yes you can get a version of the um the gui that's much like ios on android now so it's not as different as it used to be also gone are the days where android phones were ugly ugly hunks of plastic that didn't have that apple look and feel say what you want about apple they do a very good job of making their devices look and feel premium which you put a case on all of them. And and to be honest, I I think one went up, one went down. I think Apple also leveled out a little bit and going, okay, I don't think we need, we need the physical design to be as far as we took it. I think we can come down to earth a little bit here. So like the two together was a nice balance. So side Uh, note, I can't wait to see their first foldable because I'm intrigued to see what they'll do with it. Yes. Yeah. All right, well, let's go on to the next news point here, which is about Tesla's causing confusion. That's right. We're going from talking Apple and Android to talking about the Apple of the electric car business, basically, it seems like. So Tesla, Elon Musk company, been making EVs for quite a while. And there's some confusion that came about because they spotted a car in Florida that was running a LiDAR system. It looked like a Tesla car, by the way. Before we get into this, do you guys know what LiDAR is? Oh, yeah. We both know what LiDAR is because we have drones with LiDAR on it. Exactly. So for those that aren't aware, uh, clinical definition, LiDAR stands for light detection and ranging. It's a method used for determining ranges by targeting an object with a laser and measuring the time for the reflected light to return to the receiver. Oh, it's not a white fat product called lard. Oh, I thought that's what it was. Oh. So why are we talking about LiDAR? Because a lot of car companies that are out there that are pursuing self-driving tools and driver assist tools are looking at using, instead of just traditional cameras, using a combination of LiDAR and traditional cameras. Specifically, let's look at like the Ford Mustang Mach-E and things like that. And a lot of these things that are the next-gen electric vehicles are all looking at that. Interestingly enough, uh, Tesla CEO Elon Musk had at one point said that LiDAR technology and its capabilities were overblown, and he thought it was a distraction to achieving full self-driving capability, and that Teslas would be using their variety of cameras that give 360-degree coverage to provide full self-driving capabilities. Why people got confused is because in Palm Springs, Florida this last week, there was a Tesla that was spotted that had a bunch of LiDAR cameras and whatnot mounted onto it, so people started going, wait. What? Why does a Tesla have LiDAR gear mounted to it? This isn't something that Tesla's going to shift to, are they? Elon's made a big point of saying, no, 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 we're going to use traditional cameras because we think the smarts come from the software, not necessarily the sensors that are doing things. Well, I don't think we need to be super confused. If you go and read a couple articles up at Electric, they, they go and say, hey, back in 2016, we kind of described what was going on here. And what is going on is that Tesla, yes, they do use LiDAR for their demo and test vehicles because it's how they do their ground truthing. They can use the LiDAR sensors to compare the results they're getting from their cameras and software. Going back as far as 2016, Tesla had responded to an Electrek article asking about this, saying the claim that Tesla may be planning to use LiDAR as part of its self-driving technology suite is fundamentally untrue. 
we regularly test our own technologies against other sensors to calibrate our camera, excuse me, to calibrate our camera, sonar, and radar system. So what is the significance of seeing a Tesla out in Florida with a bunch of LiDAR gear hanging off of it? Perhaps we're getting closer to the rumored extended rollout of beta for Tesla's full self-driving capability. You know that capability that if you decide to buy a Tesla right now, costs an extra $10,000 on sticker price right now. Which is why, you know, if I was buying a Tesla right now, I would not be getting the full self-driving capability. And side note, there is a rumor, well, not really a rumor, but Elon Musk had said at one point in time they were going to potentially explore a subscription model for uh, auto for full self-driving mode, but that has not officially rolled out yet, which I think you could see a lot of people trying that out. But I will say this, I'm very intrigued to see what the extended beta or when there's a wider rollout of the Tesla full self full self-driving mode looks like because I want to see how well it works. I'm not sure I want to be the guinea pig that is testing that, but I can't wait to see the bajillion YouTube videos that come out of people trying Tesla's full self-driving mode when it comes out into a more extended open beta with all the full capabilities that have long been promised. Will it be worth $10,000? I don't know. And I also have a hard time knowing whether I would trust my car to let it do all of that for me. I will love self-driving cars 10, 15 years from now. I, I really will. 15, 20 years, whenever that is, when, when they're out there road testing and everything. What I am uh, concerned about is them taking away controls on the cars eventually when that happens. Because I think there's always going to be situations where you're going to need to control the vehicle yourself whether it's uh, inclement weather or maybe the network goes down or something like that, that you just need to be in control on yourself. So that, that's one thing. The other thing is I keep seeing these stupid stories about these stupid people acting like it, it's full self-driving mode right mm. now and they get tickets or they fall asleep or, or whatever and, or and they get in an accidents or, or deaths yeah. are involved. Yes. I was going to get there. And I, I think that people are taking it too, they, they're far too trusting, they're taking it too far, or they're just that stupid. Maybe they're drunk. I, I have no idea what all this is uh, about. I haven't read every single story, but I hear more and more stories all the time about somebody treating it like it's full self-driving mode, and it's not. So that concerns me between now and the 10, 15, 20 years from now. You better be in control of that car, even if it's in the automatic driving mode where it's just staying in the lane and, and, and maintaining speed or something like that on the highway. You got to be in control. You can't yeah. be reading on your on your phone or anything. You 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 might be able to take in a little bit more of the sights, but you got to have your head forward and figure out what's going on right in front of you. So in regards to things you talked about, the uh, the changing in control, we're actually starting to see that if you look at the uh, Model S and X redesigns that Tesla's putting out. Like, it's not a full steering wheel anymore. It's a steering yoke. And I honestly hate every bit of that, every piece, every bit of it, because I want the full wheel there because it's easier to hold on to. And that worries me. The other thing that we have to get used to as a society is when full self-driving comes into play, we're no longer, in theory, in control of things. We can think, we can predict how other people are going to act around us, or we can kind of read the room to see how things are going to happen. Machines can't necessarily do that. And then we're going to get eventually to the cruel calculus of how this full self-driving works, which is, oh, we're in an unavoidable wreck right now. 
I can either let the car crash and kill my occupant, or I can try and correct it, but that's going to kill the three people in front of us to potentially save this person. What's your machine going to do? The math says three lives are greater than one. I agree. That's something people have to adjust to, and that's worst case scenario, but that's a mental hurdle. A lot of people are going to have to get over whenever we get to full self-driving. I was absolutely going to bring up the trolley problem. I think that that, that mm-hmm. is that is a, a very undervalued situation with self-driving cars. And well, it's going to happen, right? Yeah. You're, there's going to be a test case. It's just yep. a matter of time. It'll go through the courts here in the United States. I don't know what it's going to be internationally, but it'll go through the courts. It'll get to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court's going to decide, you have to decide what is the... Uh, value and prioritization of life at that point it, it'll it's going to be interesting i just hope i'm not the test case and, yeah. and dead because of it we're also going to live in that weird mushy middle ground for a while where some cars have full self-driving capability and a lot of people are still doing manual controls yeah. and if everyone's using full self-driving machines can predict machines a lot more easily or things like that and can trade information but if the car in front of me is driven by steven and steven does something dumb in his car Computers aren't necessarily smart enough to account for a human doing stupid things. And, and Kent brings up an excellent point in the chat as well. But then the rich person will ask for the car to be reprogrammed because I'm rich because I own a Tesla and therefore better than the three poor people, end quote. And I, I do get what he's saying there, which is that these companies can decide whatever the heck they want unless there are legitimate laws that that dictate how those are decided. Then. Yeah, it is up to the individual who owns the property and is putting their lot, their life on the line or, or in the hands of of technology to decide how they want that programmed. I'll There's give a you lot a of- great example. Remember when the hurricane was bearing down on Florida? I forget which hurricane it was just a couple of years ago. And then in order to assist the evacuation, Tesla flipped a switch mm. and gave all the cars full access to 100% of their battery so that they yeah. could drive longer before they got to a recharging point. That's just an example of being able to flip a central switch and then enable a capability to whatever cars that they want. I mean, they do it to this day right now because if you bought your Tesla today and decided two days from after receiving it, you wanted full self-driving, you pay $10,000. They send the software to enable it, or rather they flip a switch to enable the software in your car and you're good to go. Or if you want the acceleration booster in a Model Y, you pay two thousand grand, and all of a sudden, or two thousand dollars rather, and all of a sudden, you shave off five tenths of a second on your acceleration speed for the flip of a switch and then changing a line of code. Yeah, the, the capability is there on a lot of things right now, and to a lesser extent, the Mustang Mach E that's out there now, and a lot of the self-driving assist stuff did not roll out at launch, but as a software update that comes out later, the hardware is already in place. They're still working the codes. So they're going to flip a switch and push it, and then these vehicles will have that capability. This is. The new world we're in where cars are platforms that can be updated and upgraded and things like that at the flip of a switch. Before we go on to the next news point here, you mentioned the Mustang Mach-E. I got to say, I uh, actually saw the Mach-E in person shortly after it must have been being delivered. I I saw it at Home Depot of all places. I got to say, I I know we talked about it right from when it was launched. It's not a bad looking vehicle, but in person, in person it looks less like a Mustang than when we first saw the concept and, and talked about how it didn't look like a Mustang. So uh, yeah, in person, in my my opinion, it looks even less like a Mustang. 
And if you live in the United States, though, one thing to keep in mind with that, if you're shopping electric vehicles, is you still get the $7,500 tax rebate on purchasing mm. a Ford Mustang Mach-E. It's pretty much GM and Tesla are the only two EV makers right now where that rebate has gone away for the moment. Stay tuned. There's potentially yeah. legislation coming that could change that. And if it does, I will announce on this show that I am strongly considering an electric vehicle if that legislation changes mm-hmm. and puts the rebate back into place. Make it a little bit more affordable. Mm-hmm. Model Y looks really fun if I get $7,500 off. As a family man, I'm probably a couple years away unless the circumstances allowed because I, I need that next generation of of more than just a passenger car is what I need for the family. And they're all, they're almost here. They'll be here soon enough. There's a third row in the Model Y, yeah, but it's, it's not it's, really ideal. It, no. Same with the Tesla Model X, but they're not quite there yet. No. So I completely agree with you. It'll be interesting to see what other companies come up with, not just Tesla, in yeah. regards to the family vehicle. Not necessarily the minivan, but the more than just the crossover SUV. You need like the actual SUV kind of vehicle. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Stephen is not, in the chat, Suncast says, Stephen is not quite to midlife crisis car buying yet. You know, with the amount of, McDonald- with, with the amount of McDonald's I eat, uh, I might be midlife. Uh, let's go ahead and go to our last <laughs> news point, though, SP. <laughs> yeah, really quick. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Stephen's going to die. Is it, is it even food? We don't know anymore. <laughs> so... Yeah, NASA came out with an announcement that they were going to delay the next New Frontier competition. All right. Why is this important? What is New Frontiers and what does this mean for NASA? Basically, the financial burdens of Artemis, which is the NASA program to return humans to the moon, is starting to be felt within NASA. In a statement made on May 12th, NASA stated it was postponing the release of the Announcement of Opportunity, or AO, for the fifth New Frontiers mission. Now, the draft AO was supposed to have been released in October 2023 or 2021, but is now scheduled for October 2023. And the final version will be out in 2024. In a separate but seemingly related announcement, the NASA Planetary Science Division announced a delay in the fourth New Frontier mission launched from 2026 to 2027. Now, this is the mission that will bring a helicopter to the Saturn moon of Titan for exploration. That has been the launch has been delayed till 2027. Now, delaying non-human space exploration missions due to rising costs of human spaceflight is not new for NASA. The high cost of the space shuttle program led to an 11-year hiatus of non-human exploration missions. Voyager 1 and 2 lifted off in 1977. Pioneer Venus Orbiter launched in 1978, and the Viking 2 was sent to Mars in 1976, and then crickets until 1989. That's 11 years. And the two probes that were launched were launched from the space shuttle Atlantis. It was Magellan went to Venus, and Galileo went to Jupiter. Now, the New Frontiers program has guided NASA out of the better, cheaper, faster era with three successful missions so far. New Horizons, which was launched to Pluto in 2006. Juno, still active, launched to Jupiter in 2011. And OSIRIS-REx was launched to the asteroid Bennu in 2016 for a return mission, and it's just on its way back right now. In fact, let's talk about the better, cheaper, faster era, which was sandwiched in there in the early uh, 90s to late 90s. 
It was uh, an effort to cut costs while NASA expended much of its budget to help build the International Space Station. So let's go back to the New Frontiers missions. These high-cost, high-risk, high-reward missions take place as well as some of the closer-to-home missions such as the James Webb Space Telescope and missions to Mars every about two years, including the most recent Perseverance and Ingenuity Mars 2020 mission. And all told, NASA's budget gets stretched and high-cost exploration missions tend to get bumped when a major human spaceflight pushes on. As much as I personally love the idea of human spaceflight, arguably, NASA has borne much more fruit with machine spacecraft than crewed flights. But in the end, national-level efforts backed by the executive and legislative branches of the United States government get to decide and prioritize funding for NASA. For now, they have chosen a return back to the moon, uh, but it's coming at a cost, and we're starting to see that cost for now. So guys, uh, I, I know I put a Discord note in here in the last week. I don't know if you guys read it or not on all this stuff, but uh, we're starting to see some delays. I would not be surprised to see delay beyond 2027 for the next New Frontiers launch Dragonfly, that helicopter to Saturn. Uh, it, it's just it, this Artemis thing is, is going to eat more and more and more and more money, especially with SLS not being as reusable as SpaceX. I got to say, I think we are right on the cusp of getting more support for these sort of um, non-manned or non-human missions because we have seen what a little bit of production value, a little bit of hype, a little bit of PR teams can do for interest in space exploration and things like that. And with technologies that we have now, and we see some of the things that can be sent back, um, even little things like the real sound on Mars, right? Like that, that sort of decision, these little things, I think we can get people more interested again and thus support with tax dollars these sort of missions and bump them up a little bit more. But if, if we go the way of just, you know, passive and, and you know, being 100% scientific, then it's really hard to get humans interested in these sort of things because th they don't get anything out of it. And, and I, I know the, the society does, humankind does, but at, at the end, it's tax dollars funding these things. And so you, I think you got to play, play that balance there and, and kind of Find, find what is going to keep that buzz going with some of these things, and that's how you stop these delays from happening. I don't know. That's my thoughts. When we went to the moon in the late 60s, early 70s, the question always came back, what, what did we get out of this? What, what did the spending a billion of dollars get us? Uh, are there resources on the moon that we can use? Is this better for national security? Is this better for our national economy? Those questions were asked, and quite frankly, I, it was a stretch to get from point A to point B there. Yes, there are arguments that can be made, but that was a, a constant thing, and, and so we slid back. Uh, then the space shuttle was created to try to save money, but in, in, in the end, it actually cost us a lot of science. And then the space station different iterations of it. At one point in time, the biggest one was Space Station Freedom, which ultimately became the ISS, which was an international version. Uh, but that came at a cost. You know, the better, cheaper, faster era 
I won't go into it right now because it's it's quite detailed. But there were a lot of failures because it was a lot of cheap, uh, low risk missions that were high reward and if they failed so be it but a lot of them failed so they didn't get a lot of science out of them um so i'm i'm just worried going f in the future here to to cut off our nose to spite our face sort of thing yes uh ultimately getting humans out there is is, is got to be a goal but do we really need to spend the money uh particularly i i'm, I'm gonna throw a rock at sls sls is is just too expensive and I think Starship, the way that it's positioned will be a lot cheaper. And, and we've had that cost comparison on the show before. Um, but I think NASA's throwing its rocks in the wrong bu bucket right now. It's mm. the right bucket to, to uh, push the exploration, but it's the wrong bucket to spend money where they want to spend money. And, and largely, SLS is, is literally taking the space shuttle and, and making it a reusable system. Uh, yes, there's a new capsule with the Orion capsule, but it's just, uh, I, I could talk a, a long time on this, but I, I think NASA needs to get uh, a hold of its prioritizations and really think in terms of where it wants to be when it grows up, that sort of thing. And right now it's being controlled by congressional districts rather than uh, what's really important in the prioritization. You need another figure also, like we had with Kennedy that was like, hey, we're going to the moon then kind of gave that push from a presidential standpoint. I don't know that mm -hmm. we necessarily have the chief executive on high being like, hey, here's the goal we're shooting for. I think that could probably help Well, when it comes to... Yeah, going, going to the... Like, I don't think anybody's argued with it, and that is why we have Artemis. I think Biden's on board. I think Trump was on board. And I think Obama was on board at the end. But... We're, we're at the point now where it's just it, we're spending way too much money where it's really starting to affect some science missions that it shouldn't affect. But NASA only has so much money. I, I, I get the nation only has so much money unless they want to print more or make more Bitcoin or, you know, whatever. Right. Cryptocurrency. Uh, so you have to prioritize what you want to spend money on. And right now they want to spend money on Artemis. Well, go for it. And, and we were just talking last week about the human landing system, right? Mm. Uh, SpaceX won the competition for $3 billion. Uh, Luders, who's the head of the human space flight over at NASA, said, that's all the money I have, so I'm just going to give it to SpaceX. And all of a sudden, congressmen came in, probably congressmen in the districts that are affected. Hey, let's give five, six more billion dollars so that Blue Origin can have their thing, too. Really? Where's that $6 billion going to come from? New Horizons, or New Frontier program and and uh, just different things like that. So it, it all this stuff comes at a cost. Just want to mention that here as we go forward. Okay, so everybody likes the rivalry that gets things going. Um, also, I like to think that nobody does their research anymore. So we, we've got it set up here perfectly. We know that there's no big, you know, equivalent of NASA in Canada. But that, let, let's start the rumor that the Canadians are about to beat the Americans to these projects. And so, I, you know, I'm a Canadian, so I'll just say, yeah, I can vouch for that. We're, we're this close. I'm a Canadian. You can trust me. And then you guys can just, like, peddle that lie in the States. Again, nobody ever does research, so nobody will ever bust this myth. Next thing you know, NASA's like, wow, we can't let the Canadians do it. Steven said so. And uh, then there you go. The, the rivalry sure. has started. 
Should have tried that about a year ago, Stephen. <laughs> it would have worked a year ago. Canadian Bacon. Canadian Bacon. What, what was that movie it, Alan Alda was in? Was it Canadian Bacon? Yeah, I think it was Canadian Bacon. I think so. Anyway. Uh, well, if you guys haven't been paying attention, both the NASA administrator and the deputy NASA administrator were going through congressional uh, hearings on the nomination process, and they both pointed to China as as being a serious threat. So there is a threat as far as NASA is concerned and the current administration is concerned. China huh. is a space threat. It's a callback to the Soviets are going to beat us. We need to do it. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and you know, China's they've got their internet, their space yeah. station that's going up there. They have their moon program. They've landed something on Mars. They just took their first rover out for a, a spin, all of which I have not covered on this show. But yes, they are out there and they're doing stuff. And you can find out what the future is by watching the Netflix series Space Force. But that's going to go ahead and take us to the end of the show. Before we wrap up, I'd like to take the moment here to plug and promote and do whatever we'd like to do. Uh, I'll start off here by saying, hey, check out our Discord server, by the way. If you haven't checked it out yet, gunnageek.com slash Discord. We got a lot of great conversation happening in there. It was a busy week and uh, lots of stuff in a bunch of different channels from tech to gaming to all things good and nerdies, dedicated chat room, lots of chat stuff happening. And maybe you'll even see a weird picture of Willie Nelson. Uh, Chris, what would you like to plug or promote? Hey, just a friendly reminder to everyone. If you're watching this live right now, scroll down to the bottom of the page. There's a calendar of all of our upcoming live events. So please go check some of those other uh, shows out. If you're catching this, the recorded version on YouTube, or you're downloading the audio version, go to www.geeks.live. You too can find the calendar of upcoming live events and go check out some of their live shows. If you like podcasting and pop culture, go watch the last episode of Last Man Standing. I'm like six behind, but for episode number 378 of the official Gunna Geek Show, I'm Stephen John Drew saying thanks for checking out the Gunna Geek Show wherever you're doing so. And I'm SP saying, who's got $2.9 million they can lend me? And I'm Chris Farrell, not having much faith in the future of Wear OS and Tizen. Bye. Bye. Thanks for checking out another episode of the official GunnaGeek.com show. If you like the show, please give us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or a thumbs up on YouTube. You can always join us for our live recording sessions, which stream Mondays at 8.45 p.m. Eastern at www.geeks.live. And remember, you can find our full back catalog at gunnageek.com forward slash show. If you're itching for more geeky content, check out other shows on gunnageeknetwork.com. Voice work was by Emily Prokop of the Story Behind podcast. That's it for this episode. We hope to see you back again next week.